Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 20 and concluding with chapter 13, verse 5. In our last session, we discussed the events that took place in chapter 12. This chapter began with the terrible news that Herod had the Apostle James executed simply to gain popularity among the people. He also attempted to do the same thing to Peter, but God intervened, and Peter miraculously escaped from prison. Today, we begin with the rest of the story on King Agrippa. Let's read that now. We will find that account in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. The Word of God reads this way. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. I'm reminded of the fact that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, just as the Bible declares in Proverbs 16:18. There are other verses that support this, like you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's found in Numbers 32, verse 23. And do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man sows, uh, excuse me, a man reaps what he sows. The man who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. This is a principle of life established by God, and it was proven true in the life and death of Herod. At the close of our last study, we read that Herod had traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea. From there, he traveled from Tyre to Sidon in order to participate in a festival honoring Claudius Caesar. At that festival, in honor of that great occasion, Herod wore a beautiful silver garment. Clearly, his words and his garments were meant to impress the people with his glory and greatness. However, there was a, a secondary reason for this ostentation. The Life Application Bible Commentary sheds some light into what was going on behind the scenes. Tyre and Sidon, coastal cities on the Mediterranean, were free and self-governing 
but economically dependent on Judea. It is unknown why Herod had been quarreling with them, but representatives from those cities were trying to appease him by having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They probably secured this support through a bribe. Presumably, through him, they asked for peace, needing the benefit of the Galilean market for their food supply. Well, this would probably be the reason why the people shouted the voice of a god and not of a man. They needed his help. And in their minds, this was one way to get it. However, there was a greater issue at play here. They were attributing to Herod the role of God, and God will not be mocked. Herod should have said, I'm just a mortal man, you will not worship me. But he did not. Instead, he received the words and gloried in the declaration, receiving for himself all of the glory for himself. It's too bad that he did not learn a lesson from a previous ruler of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Let's take a brief look at what happened to him when he attributed too much glory for himself. Let's turn to Daniel 4. God had given Nebuchadnezzar a vision which was to serve as information regarding his kingdom, as well as a warning if he did not repent of his wicked ways. Daniel was brought to the king to give him the interpretation of the vision. And we pick up that event with verse 27, chapter 4. Daniel is speaking. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this the devastations prophesied, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still on the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This mighty king, who ruled over the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Babylon, remained in this condition for full seven years. At the end of the seven years, God restored him to his right mind, Listen to what he said upon his recovery. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him 
who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counsels, counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Well, sadly, this was not the response of Herod, and his end was terrible. Josephus, the great Jewish historian from the first century, graphically described Herod's death. And the following is a general summary of that account. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, explained that God acted, and he did so instantly. An angel of the Lord was God's vehicle to strike Herod with a horrible illness described in gory detail, quote, so he was consumed with worms and died, end quote. Some scholars suggest that the worms were intestinal roundworms, which grow 10 to 16 inches long and rob the body of nutrients while causing intense pain. Herod died a horrible death, accompanied by intense pain. He was literally eaten alive from the inside out by worms. To be eaten by worms was considered to be one of the most disgraceful ways to die. Yes, pride is a serious sin. God chose to punish Herod's pride immediately. It took five days for him to die by being eaten alive by worms. Upon reporting the death of Herod, the very next verse, verse 23, records that the word of God grew and multiplied. This will always be true. Yes, there will always be those who oppose God and God's people, but in the end, God's word will still go out in power and great victory. This is because Jesus Christ is sovereign over all. And he's still saying to us today, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Dr. John Stott makes this astute observation as we come to the close of chapter 12. He writes, At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. The end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, 
oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. Now we come to chapter 13. This marks a new portion or division in the book of Acts. Previously, in keeping with Jesus' command in chapter 1, verse 8, the witness of Jesus as Savior and Lord had gone out first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and now it will continue to go out to the ends of the world. The two deacon evangelists have prepared the way, Stephen by his teaching and martyrdom, and Philip by his bold evangelization of the Samaritans and the Ethiopian. So have the two major conversions taken place of Saul, who was also commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, and Cornelius, a Gentile, who opened the door to Gentile evangelism. These unnamed evangelists, there were other unnamed evangelists, who also preached the gospel to the Hellenists in Antioch. And now a new era in church history is about to be born. Let's begin reading about it. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church there was a, at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tatriarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. The first thing that you will notice is that there has been a shift of location from Jerusalem to Antioch as the governing body for the church. Leadership has also shifted from the Twelve Apostles to James, the half-brother of Jesus. The focus of the balance of the book of Acts has shifted from Peter to Paul. And now a new ministry will be established, that of the missionary, the ones who are sent, set apart to go to foreign lands with the glorious gospel message of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard. The church at Antioch became the sending center of the mission to reach the world. And this marks the last phase of Christ's command in Acts 1.8. And that command has been fulfilled. Our passage began with a list of five men, five key men, who were prophets and teachers in the church. The first one mentioned is Barnabas. You maybe remember him being described in Acts 4.36 as a Jew from the tribe of Levi, who be, before he became a Christian, lived on the island of Cyprus. We know that he had been a wealthy man, and a generous man. He was a great encourager of the brethren. And he is the one who was Paul's advocate to the apostles when he was first converted. 
Later, Barnabas would travel to Tarsus to bring Paul to Antioch to preach and teach to the church there, as well as many other ministry responsibilities. The next man mentioned is Simeon, who is called Niger. The, ni- the word Niger means black-skinned, and this was, it was simply a nickname. From this nickname, we can surmise that Simeon came from Africa, and he also had become a, a Christian and a key leader in the church in Antioch, serving as prophet and teacher. There's even some speculation among Bible scholars that this was the same Simon of Cyrene who had carried the cross of Jesus to the place of crucifixion. Let me quickly read that account to you. Uh, Acts, or excuse me, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 27. Now as they led him away, Jesus, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Simeon must have become a follower of Jesus at that time. After all, how could one have such a close encounter with Jesus and be assigned to carry his cross and not be deeply impacted by that encounter? We know that his sons, Alexander and Rufus, would also rise up and become key church leaders. Next on the list is Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius came from North Africa, and he was most probably a Gentile. And there were some who believed that he was one of the founders of the church in Antioch. Menaean is mentioned next, and his story is very interesting. He, his name means comforter, and he was involved at the highest levels of Roman government, as he was a member of the court of Herod the ruler. Dr. Stott adds further historical information on the background of this man. He writes that he grew up with Herod Antipas, which is the son of Herod the Great, and he may have been brought up with him in a general way or more particularly that that he was his foster brother or intimate friend. In either case, since Luke knew a lot about Herod's court and family, Menaean may well have been his informant. Dr. Ironside adds this, though nurtured in the royal court, in all the corruption of those days, he is seen occupying a much higher honor than Herod ever obtained. He became a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. And finally, we have Saul, who is Paul. And of course, we know that he came from Tarsus in Cilicia, born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a son of a Pharisee, becoming a Pharisee himself, which made him an expert on the law, having studied under the great Gamaliel. But one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus saved him by his grace, and Saul's life was completely transformed. He became a great preacher and defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had been preaching and teaching ever since the day of his conversion and had been active as a key leader of the church in Antioch for over a year. Have you noticed the diversity 
of these key leaders, Jews and Gentiles alike, those of fair skin, those of darker skin from, from different areas of the Roman Empire, that is a picture of the church because God has gathered together people from all over the world, all walks of life, each one precious in his sight. Well, Paul and Barnabas had just returned from delivering a financial gift to the suffering believers in Jerusalem. The church had gathered to worship God and to pray, as was their practice. But on that day, something wonderful happened that would change the world forever. The Holy Spirit spoke to them, the church, probably through one of the prophets, with the following command, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This was something new, and it would change the course of human history. This was a work that God was calling these two men to, and the church would affirm this calling. The word for set apart is epharizo. It is used to describe three important events in Paul's life his birth, his conversion, and his calling, his being sent into the Gentile mission field. And because God called them to the work, they had his blessing from the start. We read in our passage that after the Holy Spirit spoke this command, the church continued with fasting and prayer. And then they laid hands on them and sent them out on their first missionary journey. The laying on of hands was a symbolic act that indicated public recognition of, or, of calling and ability, as well as the associating association of this congregation with the ministry. The roots of the practice are found in the Old Testament, where it was used to set someone aside for an office, that would be in Numbers 27, 23, to bless someone, Genesis 48, 14, or for an office, Numbers 27, 23. The church at Antioch was identifying itself with these two men and with their mission. I like the following observation that Dr. Ironside makes. He writes, some have thought of this as the ordination of Barnabas and Saul as gospel ministers. That is absurd on the face of it. Both have been preaching the gospel many years. This laying on of hands was an expression of the fellowship of the Antiochian church with these men as they shared the work of world evangelization. As these brethren laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, they said in effect, Brethren, we are one with you in this missionary enterprise. You go out into the regions beyond, and we shall stay by you here at home. Notice that while the church had full fellowship with them in their going out, we are not told they were sent by the church. They did not get their commission from the church, but from the risen Lord, who had told them to go into all the world. I think 
that it is an excellent point and one that the church needs to remember today. Well, Barnabas and Paul, along with Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, traveled about 15 miles to Seleucia, the port near the mouth of the river Orontes. And from there, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. We don't know for sure why Cyprus was their first destination, but we can speculate that it was because that was the home territory for Barnabas. And he must have had many friends and family that he wanted to tell about Jesus. They traveled to the city of Salamis where they preached the word of God. You will notice that they started with the synagogues. That will always be Paul's pattern wherever he traveled. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul would later write, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Salvation comes from the Jews because Jesus was born a Jew. The word of God was penned primarily by Jews as a testimony to the Jews first and also to the Gentile. The Holy Spirit was given first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But the gospel is for all. Whoever would believe and receive the gift of salvation and everlasting life. As Jesus said, in John 3:16 and 17 for God so loved the world that's you and me that he gave his only begotten son that whoever it's open to whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved in Romans 10, 9 through 13, we read that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? If not, you can do so right now. Just simply pray, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sin and that you rose from the dead. Please forgive me and come into my life as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Amen. If you pray to that prayer, I am rejoicing with you. It is important that you find a church that you can teach, who can teach you more about Jesus and who can love you and pray with you. It's also important that you read your Bible that is how God will teach you more about himself and how to live for him. 
and you will find that it will give you great encouragement, counsel, and hope in the days to come. I encourage you to start with the New Testament book of John, and then that way you will learn all about Jesus, and then go from there. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. But if you already know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, let me encourage you to continue to draw near to him. Be sure to read his word daily, that you may grow, that you may continue to grow in your faith. Be sure to participate in church, worshiping God, learning more of him, and serving him within the body of Christ. And don't forget, tell somebody about Jesus. Well, in our next session, we're, we will begin to walk with Barnabas and Paul on, through their first missionary journey. And there's so much to learn from their adventures and their, and their uh, ministry for the kingdom of God, that gospel message of Jesus Christ. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your authority that we see, have seen in this passage today, that you truly are sovereign over the nations of the world and even sovereign over our lives. And we give you thanks that we serve such a wonderful God, a powerful God, a mighty God, who is able to save, who is able to deliver. We recognize, O oh God, that you have called us to be your witnesses. And Lord, we just pray that you will continue to empower us and make us bold to be faithful to that call. We thank you for the example that these early church leaders have set for us an example of zeal, an example of faithfulness, an example of testimony, the teaching of your word, the preaching of your word. We thank you, O oh God, that your work continues on today and that you are still building your church and that salvation is open to all whether it be male or female, young or old, Jew or Gentile, no matter what race, you love us all. You are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is your heart's desire. So Lord, I pray that we will be bold to tell others this wonderful, glorious news of Jesus the Savior of the world. Thank you, O God, for all that you are and all that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That email address is just all one word, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. Well, until next time, my friend, may God continue to bless you, and may you continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <music>